Hello, everyone. It's G3, and today I'll be talking to both Jordi Visser and Mike Edwards of Weiss on the topic of concentration. And I'm not talking about the board game from Milton Bradley or the thing you do with a singular focus, but the phenomena in which portfolios have risk clump together in a small number of large positions. Portfolio concentration can be one of those inside baseball issues that can matter quite a bit at certain times, and yet it often escapes attention by investors or at least until the trade associated with a concentrated position blows up, and then the carnage can sometimes be seen everywhere. So please stick around and check out important disclosures at the end of the episode. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please feel free to rate it because we'd certainly welcome a concentration of reviews. And with that, welcome. Jordi and Mike, glad to be with both of you today so you can lift the veil here and clue us in as to what you are seeing in the market right now that could speak to this concentration issue. To kick things off, I'd like to turn back the calendar to last year. Mike, you wrote a paper on the now infamous Archegos implosion entitled Concentration is Leverage. It's a fantastic piece. I will make sure to put it in the show notes. And in it, you said, quote, the archetypal narrative for this incident is that Archegos was fueled by excess leverage flying Icarus-like with eight times levered positions. However, it was not leverage per se that melted those waxen wings. The culprits were portfolio concentration and opacity, both truly unprecedented in scope. That is some pretty good prose there, Mike. <laughs> Turning to you first, please refresh our memory, if you could, on what happened with Archegos and related issues like GameStop, AMC, and other mean names, and what you observed in the market at that time that compelled you to add your voice. Thanks, G3. So just translating that into a more brief and less flourished statement, I think the thing that people didn't understand in the moment, I think they understand it very well now, was that in that instance, Archegos, but even going back to last January when we had what started as people referring to as the GameStop phenomenon, but the meme stock-driven short squeeze, is there were portfolios that had effectively the same trade-on in that instance to January, the long side and the short side. And in the instance of Archegos that had a number of very large positions relative to the liquidity on a single position basis and had a lot of them that were effectively the same trade. So they all went up together. And then as they started to come down together and had to be unwound, the positions were so large relative to liquidity and all moving in the same direction at the same time that liquidity couldn't be facilitated when the sort of the curtain was pulled back. And that's where that concentration was actually a bigger problem than whether that portfolio was 10% margin or 20% margin or 30%. I mean, those are less important details than the fact of the portfolio construction itself. Jordy, when I think back to the long-term consequences of that period, I think about some high-profile investors besides Swang that needed to be saved as the market for meme stocks stayed irrational longer than some of those folks could stay liquid. Can you describe some of the lasting impacts of that period that remains with the market today? Well, I think one of the things to start with for people listening is why are we even talking about this? I think Mike and I in particular are very focused on 
what the rest of the year is going to look like in terms of news and what people will be talking about. I don't think right now the concept of concentration is really being noted by people listening. I think this, when you say inside baseball, I think this is something that we talk about. And the reason that's important is if everyone goes back to read When Genius Failed and read about the LTM situation, which I was personally involved with from a trader perspective at Morgan Stanley in terms of seeing the upside and the downside of it. Beginning last year, we're talking about a concentration unwind where concentration risk has been highlighted and has been going down in very ways since January of last year. Archer goes is one way to look at it. Obviously, the, the GameStop situation in January is another. But when you break down what's happened to the IPO market in the U.S., the numbers are staggering of how many IPOs are trading below their issue price that came out over the course of the last two years. It's another form of like contagion or just we're repricing this concentration risk. As things are coming to the market, they're just not there. The SPAC market had a huge headline grabbing move of money flowing into the space. And then last year that went through another situation that was very similar. And then this year we've seen names that are familiar with innovation and growth that have been the darlings of the last 10 years being in trouble and and trading off. And I think we're doing this episode because people are going to start reading some numbers inside the hedge fund space that are going to be breathtaking to see. And there's going to be a lot of questions. So hopefully this is getting ahead of the news, which I'm sure will start to get released at the end of the quarter. But I think what we're also going to get into is there's more dominoes to fall on this because the public markets are priced real time. Hedge funds have, in some cases, monthly, but as long as quarterly liquidity. So they're forced to manage to their investor base and not take these significant losses. The private market is a little bit different. They don't have to take marks as quickly, and we think that that's going to be involved too. So for the rest of the year, we think the listeners should pay attention to this episode because concentration is a much bigger risk than people realize that it started even as early as we work a couple of years ago. Okay, so I want to just hit stop there for a moment on that. And just first have you describe to us what the difference is between concentration and a crowded trade, because as I've admitted to both of you, I sometimes conflate the two. Well, I would think of concentration as being a portfolio construction concept and crowding as being a market observation of sort of relative positioning or people being positioned in the same trade. They both impact liquidity your ability to exit a trade or to change your mind, if you will. And that's something that we obviously think a lot about is that's your best defense in portfolio construction. But concentration happens in two different ways. One, you take large positions that are large part of your portfolio. And in some cases, depending on the size of the fund, and we obviously saw this in the episodes that you were referencing from last year. And again, towards the end of the year last year and the beginning of this year as well, and some of the growth, I'll call them expensive growth names that were big COVID beneficiaries and some in SaaS software and some in you know some of the Chinese internet names, all of these, you have some funds that have very large positions relative to the float of those companies. So that's the concentration piece. The correlation piece within that is uh, there are a lot of funds that are effectively, they may have 30 long positions, but 25 of them are basically the same trade, just in different companies similar profile, similar valuation, similar underlying drivers. And when you have significant changes in the environment, whether that be the shift from a scarcity of nominal growth during the COVID era to now 
plenty of nominal growth or change in the Fed or simply a a change in underlying secular phenomena of which there are many, and I'm sure Jordy will reference some of those, that can lead to needing to change a whole bunch of positions all at the same time. That's both the concentration and correlation piece. The crowding piece is, unfortunately, in segments of the asset management industry, it's not specific to hedge funds, but there's a lot of groupthink. And a lot of people follow one another into the same trades and you get, you know, a number of similarly thinking funds that are in similar positions. And if they all try to exit at the same time, it becomes a a race to the bottom, as it were. And one of the reasons I like referencing back to the Archegos phenomenon is in the very concentrated period of time when you saw the prime brokers take over those positions and try to exit them, the banks who fared the best in that bloodletting were the ones who exited first. And that has been... With some exceptions, that's also been the case over the last, let's call it, four to five months of people exiting the expensive growth trade, where selling in the first week of December was the right trade. If you waited until March, it was problematic. You were the bag holder in crypto speak. Exactly. And I'm not sure. There are plenty of people, they can remain nameless, who would advocate for diamond hands in crypto speak. That has not been, on a mark-to-market basis, that has not been good portfolio management. Well, maybe not in equities, but I, I think in crypto, it probably would be a good thing. I think Jordy would be characterized as a diamond hands guy in crypto, that's, don't you think? <laughs> that's fair. These are not mutually exclusive phenomena. <laughs> Let's turn back to you, Jordy. You mentioned pre-IPO companies and WeWork. Can you go a little bit deeper there as to what you are seeing right now? You've described WeWork as sort of a canary in the coal mine in a way, what are you seeing out there in terms of private canaries that make you think we could see some significant repercussions, maybe in the hedge fund world? Before I do that, I think I'm going to summarize what Mike said to some degree, I think to simplify it to things that we can all relate to as kids, because I think concentration and crowdedness, and in particular correlation, there is some degree of knowledge that we're assuming people have. So I'm going to use two simple things from my youth that will explain both side. So crowdedness, when I was in sixth grade, I would say out of the 30 kids in my sixth grade class, 15 of them had suede pumas. That's crowdedness. Okay. For concentration, your mother tells you at a very early age, don't put all your eggs in one basket. So when you're thinking about concentration from a risk basis, it really is that people have too much of their eggs in one basket. And that might be technology, that might be growth, that might be high multiple names. It doesn't really matter. But as a firm, the reason we use analytics is to get a sense as to how crowded our portfolio gets at any point and make sure that it's not a static crowdedness. I think that's an important distinction to make for people so that they can understand. Because again, as concentration becomes more of a story this year, the question people are going to ask is, how can this happen? In terms of WeWork and just kind of ways to think about it, I would take WeWork and then compare it to something that's happened this year, which is equally as, I would say, shocking, is Facebook, Meta. So WeWork, when they were going through the IPO round, what stood out to me is you've got some major banks basically saying the valuation should be $100 billion. And then before we get six weeks later, effectively, the company's worth zero or close to zero. Meta was worth over a trillion dollars this year, and now I think it's worth about $650 billion. So you've had a $400 billion drop in market cap. WeWork, you had $100 billion of synthetic drop in market cap. I think what we're realizing with a lot of these companies where they're all based on some future valuation, at a time when the market is starting to focus a lot more on inflation, 
When you're in a period of inflation, that means supply and demand are out of balance, and those names that are relative to supply and demand are growing earnings fast, while the names that had been doing well in a disinflation low growth period are starting to suffer. And they're coming down because their valuations were extremely high. And I think for everyone out there, there is a difference between some of the names that maybe they haven't heard of. But when you're starting to impact names like WeWork and Facebook, you've entered a different realm. And I think that's going to be the most shocking thing of this is that over the course of the year, if we're still in this supply demand imbalance where people are thinking inflation is going to be high, this stuff all started around a time when you go through the whole thing where the market was dealing with valuations differently and then we printed an enormous amount of money. Now we've got higher inflation and I think the valuations for a lot of these companies are going to continue to come down and they are over-owned and crowded. So I say over-owned and crowded. These are concentrated positions and they're crowded and they're over-owned. And so to Mike's point, that doesn't have to be the case. You can have concentrated portfolio, but no one else has those. It could be an idiosyncratic event. But now I think it's a market dynamic where you've got these very over-owned at the retail level, the institutional level, and they're very crowded and concentrated in anything, the S&P 500 or people's portfolio. Price to fantasy metrics don't work in an inflationary period. But I want to drill down a little bit deeper. When you say over-owned and concentrated, what are the specific types of funds that could get in trouble as a result of that? Honestly, at this point, I think everybody's portfolio is concentrated in this. So when you have a scenario where MSCI World X the U.S. is unchanged since 2007, people that had at that time, let's say 30% U.S. companies and 30% X U.S. companies, just as an example, well, the U.S. has gone up over two times during that period. Unless people sold out of them, and I don't meet a lot of people that sell out of their winners, they have more U.S. stocks than they do non-U.S. stocks. The same thing has happened in terms of technology versus anything related to commodities. So the energy sector is such a small percentage of the weighting that every single person on the planet who's benchmarked is concentrated at this point, and they're in crowded names because those names have gone up the most over the last 10 years, and they've been isolated to U.S. technology companies. Retail, anyone who's done model portfolios, they're all extremely benchmark weighting or passively investing, which means almost everyone across the entire universe is overweight U.S. technology stocks, which means the concentration should be alarming to people if they believe that inflation is going to last for more than this year. Let's elaborate on that. Disinflation has been sort of a mantra for quite a long period of time. And of course, as you've described, Jordy, we are now in a completely different regime. We are in a regime of higher inflation. Let's talk about sort of where that ultimately goes. Mike, do you want to chime in here? I want to start with where it came from. Okay. And then we can go to where it goes. And maybe Jordy can handle that piece. The where it came from, I love Jordy's simplification. What changed is, I think what changed in terms of, you've called it the price to fantasy, or, I mean, we we refer to a lot of the impossible to value stocks as being concept stocks. I like price to fantasy better. It's catchy, don't you think? I like that. Thank you. And I do think this is not the first time in secular technology bull markets that people just make up metrics because the old ones don't work anymore. That's usually an indication of flights of fantasy. But what's changed, people talk about a duration trade and equities being a duration trade and what's happening in the bond market. And we'll leave that for another episode. But what's changed here is during COVID, when we printed all this money and we were so stimulative, we paid people, we meaning the U.S. policymakers, were paying investor to be patient, extremely patient. 
wait for this reinvention of this green or battery technology, this EV company, this rocket company, that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, that would eventually produce revenue and then would eventually, in many cases, five years from now would have first revenue and 15 years from now might be profitable. Taking people through traditional valuation metrics and the way the DCFs work and this sort of thing is pretty boring. But I think you can best summarize it by being saying that when rates are zero, people are paid to wait. And when there's no inflation, people and or even deflation, people feel like they're being paid to be patient. And that has turned on a dime. Now, impatience is being reflected not only in the valuation phenomenon, but also, which is sort of the point of everything that Jordy just said in terms of the overowned, concentrated and crowded as being a, facilitating a race for the exit when the door is actually very narrow because of relative to the size of the need to exit because of that phenomenon. And that's what leads to very, very fast price moves. And to Jordy's point on not people not selling their winners, a lot of people didn't have the chance because you're talking about a lot of things. I mean, Meta or Facebook is a, is a modest mega cap example. There are a lot of examples of very large companies that fell 60% in a month and a half, two months. They, they didn't give you an opportunity to decide to get through the exits before they repriced. So I, I do think that that kind of, I mean, we'll call it duration and market speak, but that patience phenomenon is really important in terms of what changed. So Jordy, based upon what Mike said, do you anticipate seeing any high profile blowups in the coming months as a result of some funds being highly concentrated in names that are just not coming back and that they couldn't get out of? Depending on how you define blow up, I think there'll be losses. That's why I think we're talking about the fact that people are going to see these numbers. The first reaction, which normally happens when you see these kinds of losses, is that it's a good time to invest because this is a cyclical thing and you're buying in it cheap and you're raising money. And I would imagine that the same thing is going to appear to happen here. I think this is a much longer tail. And to get back to the point that Mike said, leaving to me, about why this is even going on. I think of the world in terms of the relationship since the beginning of, let's say, the expansion of capitalism, but really the beginning of evolution of making the world interconnected. You've got the supply and demand situation of the physical world and you have innovation. Innovation is meant to make the supply and demand situation easier to, to transact, meaning how do we shorten the time that it takes to get something from point A to point B? So innovation we think of now as software and as the internet, but really it's it was transportation, it was planes, it was trains, it was fuel, it was whatever. So there's always innovation happening. The problem is when you have overinvestment in innovation, you by definition have underinvestment in the physical world. Then if you get a rise in the physical world at a time where supply and demand are out of balance, you get inflation. And the innovation side is meant to help that. But right now we have a disconnect. We've overinvested in these concentrated names. There's so many software companies. There's so many cyber. There's just so many of them. And they're valued at such a high level. And as we've talked about, their weighting in indices is enormous. And so when you get to the point where supply and demand is out of balance, there's two things that normally happen. One is it takes a long time for the physical world to catch up. You can't just snap your finger and make oil all of a sudden show up. So it's going to be a period of time. Inflation is going to be higher. At the same time, you have way too many investments on this other side. So when one group like the energy names are up 30 plus percent this year, the technology names are down on the year in the worst performing group. How long can that pressure be that you're underweight a group that's up 35% in the year and you're overweight one that's down on the year? This is going to be a lot of years of this, in my opinion. So we're still sitting with concentration because this only started when transitory ended in people's mind, which was in November. The third part of this, which Mike and I did our last podcast on, 
is the medium of exchange in the world. The most important medium of exchange in the world is the dollar. Whenever commodities and the supply and demand is out of whack, it typically means the dollar is weakening. The thing that happens this time, concentration is also a risk that people have to associate with the blockchain. Crypto is going to disrupt incumbents and moats, and by definition, all companies are exposed to the risk over the next five years, not only of the overinvestment in the space, the need for investment in the physical world, but also a competing global borderless internet, which will disrupt all of the advantages, in my opinion, that the United States has had by controlling Web 1.0 and Web 2.0 over the last 30 years, and the dollar will start to weaken. So this is all related and concentration. The dollar is a concentrated risk. Technology is a concentrated risk. The United States as people's portfolio is a concentrated risk. So I think this is in the very early stages of a pendulum shift with all investors have to adapt to. All right. Picking up on that point, this idea of incumbents may watch their moats shrink away. One interesting dynamic that I'm looking forward to seeing how it plays out will be how the PRC and the so-called Beijing backstop, as you've coined it, Mike, will figure into this. Can you speak to China's role in this and also maybe more specifically around the kind of tech unwind that has, at least for now, been managed fairly effectively, I think, by China? But as Jordy describes it, it seems like it's only a matter of time before even China is ultimately unable to control these forces that are going to undoubtedly impact it as well. Yeah, I think there's really important intersecting phenomena here. One of them is some of the through the geopolitical conditions around that Beijing backstop, which we'll come back to. But the other, through the lens of concentrated trades that are being unwound that are very, in this case, growth sensitive, right? For a long period, I would go back to the early 2000s. China has been the engine of global growth, as it were. So that's very important in and of itself. I would not call it expensive growth because a lot of the Chinese internet names and that sort of thing actually aren't that expensive. But there's some slightly different timelines here over the last year in which you've had unwinds of that trade, some of it leading to like global market anxiety. But July, August was really where you saw, and we talked about this in a prior China Primer podcast was where you saw tech regulation start to come to the fore and, and really having a lot of anxiety about the stability of, we'll call it moats in the same way Jordy just did, of a lot of the incumbents in China and ways in which their growth might be truncated, ways in which they would have to change their go-to-market and also simply affecting the ability to own at literally from an ownership perspective, some of the founders of these companies being a threatened. That led to the first legs, really, plural, of that unwind. And then I think exacerbating it, which was always sort of there in the, in the background, was this China-U.S. financial divorce, as it were, which really affected the willingness of people to hold, people globally, to hold ADRs. Because one thing that is somewhat intentional and somewhat accidental, depending on the lens you look through, is that a lot of the technology market cap for China's incumbent technology firms is actually domiciled outside of China, either in Hong Kong or in U.S. ADRs. And some of the financial antipathy towards China that is, is really growing and has a lot of momentum in the U.S. has been expressed through forced unwinds or forced delistings that we anticipate sort of on a 2024-2025 timeline. And that has sort of gone back and forth. So all of those things have contributed over the last few months, starting in July, August, then accelerated in December through March. Now, two Wednesdays ago, 
there was this all in the wake of understandable market anxiety about China supporting Russia in it, both via sanctions and potentially even militarily. Those anxieties were reversed in what I called at the time a, a, a rhetorical bazooka that was fired by a number of authorities in Beijing to reverse that and basically assert that China was and remained market oriented. It would not join Russia in the bad actors list and be subject to sanctions. It also cared about market participants in the property sector in general through credit stimulus, as well as facilitating on this ADR angle, facilitating access to books and records that might allow the SEC and accounting authorities in the U.S. to keep these firms listed. This all happened more or less at the same time as a big reassurance that China remained market-oriented and that, among other things, shareholder wealth and wherewithal was a priority that would not be completely subjugated to other policy priorities. That's a huge reversal, and you've seen it in the price action since then. And I think that's really important in terms of drawing a line under the You've said it in other discussions under the bloodletting. There are many phenomena that start to point to some of these things being in, in the latter innings or being over. At least for the China angle, I think that's the case. So bottom line, Xi Jinping has a Bloomberg on his desk. I seriously doubt that, but he listens to someone who does. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's conclude by ending on an actionable note here. For investors who want to reduce their overall concentration risk... What should they do? Mike, you're hot right now. I want to turn to you. Keep going. And then we'll end with Jordy. I'll start with the diagnosis rather than the prescription. I'll leave the prescription to Jordy. I think the most important thing from a diagnostic perspective is to understand whether it's directly or indirectly, whether a portfolio is diversified in the sense of having different drivers, whether those are factors, geographic phenomena, and, you know, and obviously size, so that a whole bunch of positions that might look like different positions are not actually the same thing. I think, and I will say one thing that's somewhat forward-looking, I suppose, if there's another shoe to drop in the concentration and the sort of the growth trade problem, I think a place that people have to be focused in portfolios and in commitments going forward is in private markets. Um, because obviously there's a lag between how privates are marked, and I'm thinking about obviously some of the unicorns and decacorns that were, you know, originally sort of the exclusive providence of venture capital firms. But now there's a lot of other firms of various different stripes that are all invested in these things. And at the end of the day, liquidity is going to determine how those things are priced. And so I would say it's very likely that those at least converge directionally to public market pricing. And so thinking about for that portion of people's portfolio in terms of thinking about concentration risk, you have to think about where the liquidity is and thus where the exits are. So in summary, thinking about both what's correlated and concentrated within the portfolio, but using liquidity as a measure for that is the way I would think about it. Jordy, what do people do? Acknowledge the fact that they are positioned almost by definition in disinflation. And if they are now believers which hopefully they are, that inflation will be higher for longer than what they think, or at least the fact that that is more likely than the way their positions are. If you've got 70 to 80% of your portfolio in things that are related to disinflation, you obviously need to rebalance that. The rebalancing can be in things that have, like energy, that have outperformed. 
If you believe that commodities are going to stay higher, particularly after Russia, Ukraine being new information, countries like Brazil are up significantly this year. They benefit a lot from having a cheaper currency. They raised rates aggressively last year, so they've already been fighting inflation. And at the same point, they have a lot of the world's commodities. So if it's going to be easier to get them from Brazil, Brazil is an investment place that I've talked about on this podcast and I've talked relentlessly. MLPs, which were darlings in 2010 to 2012, IPOs were coming out. They've had a great year so far and they're still paying dividends as high as 7 8%, which is higher than where rates are. Basically, you're in a position where if this year the S&P is up 7 to 10%, which is what I've said and I still believe, if you have your money in cash, you're losing 5 to 7% a year in terms of inflation. If you have your money in technology and it finishes the year only down 5%, but it's down 5% the next 4 years because of what we've talked about. You're not only losing the 5% a year, you're losing the ability to make money to compete with inflation. And that's what people have to do. They are priced for disinflation. They are positioned for disinflation. They are in the same concentration risk. If you want to hedge your innovation risk to the disruption I've talked about, I'm going to keep saying Bitcoin. We've talked about it on here, and I've made the statement that Bitcoin would be the best performing asset this year. Well, as of right now, Bitcoin is up on the year. Stocks are down. Bonds are down. People don't have enough money in there. 5 to 10% will help offset the technology side, because if it can go up, well, ARC, one of the innovation darlings is down over 20% and I don't know, 60% off the highs. And many people have it. Bitcoin is just another innovation name that people have to have in, which is disruptive and it gives you more hedges. There's a lot of things out there. We talk about it a lot and we have G3, but I just think people have to rebalance their portfolio and find some of these things that can compete with inflation. So Bitcoin, Brazil, MLPs, should all be looked at, and you should probably get rid of your suede pumas. I probably still have a couple <laughs> pairs somewhere in my closets back in the attic at home. <laughs> yeah, you know what happens though when it rains, right? I, I think you should NFT those. And <laughs> then you're diversifying. I'd like you to tell everyone. Those are not have, pumas. They're not pumas, but they are suede. They are suede. Okay. <laughs> all righty. Thank you both, gentlemen. On that note, we're going to wrap up today and look forward to speaking to you both again soon about related issues here. This was great. Good stuff. Thanks, G3. Thanks, G3. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investments. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.